Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me. We had some technical difficulties starting the show off, but I am here. I am going to be joined by author and Minnesota Twins official scorer, Stu Thornley, who will be joining me on this episode. Really, really looking forward to having Stu here. He is an author. He has written several books. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about what it's like to be an official scorer for the, a professional team. Now, and that's something pretty interesting. When you think about it, he, he's the person who kind of decides if if it's a hit, if it's a run, if it's an error. I mean, you have to have a lot of knowledge for that, and you have to just know a lot of situations and we're uh we're going to talk to him here he's he's running a few minutes late he's a little bit behind schedule but that is not a problem we'll uh we'll wait until he gets here but you can go to his website which is called stewthornley.net which is s t e w t h o r n l e y.net stewthornley.net it gives you all the books and everything that he's written. It's a really, really fascinating read. He's he's a uh, he's a really, really fascinating guy. If you um, go there and you click on it, he has not only written a bunch of different books. Um, he is also, like I said, the play-by-play guy for the Twins, and he also co-wrote a book called Holy Cow. The Life and Times of Hall v. Hall, um, or I'm sorry, he wrote that, um, a biography of Minnesota sports legend and the first man to use the term holy cow. He also helped um, Herb Carneal co-author his book. So we're going to talk all about this um, when he comes on. He he does a lot of data casting for the Minnesota Twins. We're going to talk all about that. It's going to be... It's going to be really interesting. I'm very, very intrigued to see how he becomes an official, how you become an official scorer um, for a major league team. That's that's something that's really interesting to me. We're also going to talk about what role he plays with the Minnesota Timberwolves, which is kind of an interesting thing. I didn't I didn't know that he played a role for the Timberwolves. So Stu is here now. So it's it's time to bring him on. It's, this is this is uh, enough about hearing me blab. Let's get to the guest, ladies and gentlemen, Mister Stu Thornley. Hi, Stu, Devlin. How you, how you doing? 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 I'm doing yeah, great. I'm how are you? Great. Good. Very good. Hey, so I kind of want to talk about how you grow up. How you grew up, you know, getting into baseball because obviously, you know, you're the, the official scorer for the Twins. But talk to me before you became the official scorer. What? How did you get involved with baseball, and what made you fall in love with it? I just uh, started going to games and playing it, and it was the sport it seemed at the time. I was of the age that at the time I started to discover things such as baseball. The Twins had just moved. Minnesota and I'd watch the games with my dad and go to the games and started playing baseball and did that and 
But I, as I continued to do that through high school, I was also reading and, and enjoying the history of the game and discovering when I went to the game that I enjoyed keeping score of it as well. Now, you wrote a book specifically that I had mentioned called Holy Cow, The Life and Times of Halsey Hall. What made you decide to write that book? I was working with a publisher, uh, and his name is Norton, Still- Norton Stillman of Noden Press. And in the late 80s, we had hooked up, and the first book that I did was on the Minneapolis Millers baseball team. And after that came out, we did a book on the Minneapolis Lakers, the basketball team. And then he was the one we, in fact, we just went out to lunch at some point right after the Lakers book came out. And I had been at um, the lunch for a Hall of Fame induction, Minnesota Sports Hall of Fame, that Halsey was inducted, and I was mentioning this to Norton, and he, it was his idea. He said, well, why don't we do a book on him? And I didn't really know if people would remember him enough, but I was happy to find out that they did. And uh, even though he was, at that point, had been dead for over 10 years. So that's how that book came apart and uh, about. And I've worked with Noden Press on some other books since then, and then some other publishers as well. Now, we t- we talked about a week ago about one, one of my favorite books that is, uh, or one of my favorite people that you helped write their book is uh, Herb Carneal. Talk to me about the Herb Carneal book, what that experience was like, and how that came about. Okay, yeah. The, after we had done a few books, uh, Norton Press, Norton Stillman and I, um, and on different people, we first came up with Ray Christensen and Norton said something, I don't remember what prompted it. He just said, do you think Ray Christensen would be interested in doing a book on his life experiences as a sportscaster and other things? And then, so this was a different type of book where you were the collaborator, where you uh, talk to somebody and even go out and do research yourself and write it up in his words. And after we did that, I guess it seemed natural to do it with Herb Carneal, and Herb was interested. And that whole book went pretty well quickly and I, I went down to he, he spent winters in Florida and so it was we got to get going with it before before the twins would have gotten back before he would have gotten back to Minnesota with the team so I went down there and I think January of 95 and got started with it and we were able to have the book out by the end of the year and he, uh, he's interesting fellow and I had grown up listening to him and Ray Ray Christensen so that that was one of the things is try to put a book into their words what they sound like and at least after listening to the person on the radio and and then face to face with the person too you try to try to get a sense of uh, what how they talk because not everything is just what they might say into a tape recorder and then you just write it out. Sometimes you go off and and find information about the games they covered and write it up uh, and try to make it sound like them. And they will have the opportunity to look at it too and make sure that they're comfortable with it. This is a little different than something else because you are putting words into a person's mouth. And so that person has to look at those and make sure they're okay and but also make sure that just how they how they think they sound or how they would say it. 
I think I think the one question that a lot of people who maybe or a lot of fans who maybe are my age in their thirties or twenties that listening to John Gordon and Herb Carneal on WCCO might ask is he he seems like he was the he seems like the person he was as a broadcaster is who he was as a person. Is that is that pretty accurate? Was Herb Carneal the same person as a broadcaster that he was as a person? Yeah, he wasn't overly talkative, which is what I liked about him as an announcer and he was like that as well as you as you met him, uh, and so it, it's and I, a lot of people did get the chance to meet him, and I'm sure found him to be sort of the same way, especially after uh, the book came out, and he would be out signing it, and people would come to see him and chat with him as they were getting a book signed. And I think a lot of the people found that too. They listen to the person and they start to imagine what a person is like, and don't end up surprised, which is a good thing, that the person is just the way one imagined that person while listening to him. Now, you've done a lot of traveling. It's on your on your uh, personal website. It says that you have tri- driven, you've traveled to every major league um, stadium, and you wrote a book in 2000, or you wrote a book that, I'm sorry, came out in the fall of 2000, about one of my favorite old stadiums ever. It's called Land of the Giants, New York's Polo Grounds. How did that come about? I never was at the Polo Grounds. That's one that predates me, but it's been my favorite. And uh, the odd shape of it, uh, I always enjoyed looking at the stadium diagrams, too. As I grew up, I, I would see all of the American League stadiums on TV and got to know them pretty well because the Twins played there, and, and I saw some of the National League stadiums, too. The Polo Grounds was last used in 1963, and I don't even know if I ever watched a baseball game uh, live from there. It would have been the Mets, and they probably didn't have that many Game of the Weeks with the Mets on the Polo Grounds. But looking at the diagram, it was hard to imagine what a place like that would look at. You know, This was 279 feet down the left field line, 258 feet, not 59 feet, something like that, down the right field line, and then 480 feet to center field. And so I started looking for photographs to see what this looked like. And I, so that was always the stadium that fascinated me more than any other one. It wasn't until the 1990s that I got there to the site. I'd been around the site because it was right across from where Yankee Stadium is now. But to get down there and along the river and look up at the bluffs, so I just became interested in it again and started gathering more information and then kind of figured, well, I guess I'm writing a book on it, and that's what I did. It's historic, and there were a number of different stadiums called the Polo Grounds. The reason that, for the name uh, doesn't even have anything to do with the, the last version of it, the one that everybody would know the best, the one where... Bobby Thompson at the famous home runner. Willie Mays made the great catch. Uh, but the, their original home was north of Central Park on what was a polo field. And they just, as they moved around and moved uptown, they carried that name with them. So it was a strange name for a strange ballpark. Now, one of one of the more interesting um, books that you wrote, it's kind of a, kind of a non-baseball book, but... Um, 
it was a you wrote a book about Dennis Rodman and oh, yeah. Rodman thought about changing his name a few years ago and your wife had a pretty interesting <laughs> response to that. Can you can you talk about uh, that whole book and what he wanted to change his name to and what she what she thought about that? <laughs> yeah, she she thought it was a good idea because he was talking about changing his name to orgasm. Uh, which is, I guess, Dennis Rodman-like. If uh, any, is not, nothing's even surprising coming out of him. So he um, and I was just joking around, uh, and my wife said, "Yeah, that might end up opening on a whole new career path of writing for you if you were to do a book named <laughs> Orgasm." So uh, he didn't change the name, and the. He, I, that's a children's book, and it was Enslow Publisher in, in New Jersey. I've done for Learner Publications in Minneapolis and Enslow out in New Jersey. I've done um, some some different, uh, more, mostly sports biographies, and that was one of them. And it's different, you know. I did Cal Ripken. That's kind of a straightforward book about a, a great player and somebody who's, who's not into getting into trouble or anything like that too much and here is a completely different type of subject so that was uh and he at the time that i did it he you know really hadn't seemed to go off the deep end yet he was just known for changing his hair color and having a lot of tattoos and he seemed to get a little stranger after that yeah, you know, I still remember, you know, as a Timber, as a lifelong Timberwolves fan, I still remember the night that he was playing there and he kicked the cameraman and that whole thing, and, and yep. that was kind of crazy. Um, yeah, what, what and that was, yeah, he was with the Bulls at that done. time. I was at that game, and and remember seeing that. That would be, you know, it's, it's always something with him, and I guess it still is. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Let's switch gears here. Now you have a second. Um, you you have kind of a secondary career, uh, which is very interesting. You do data casting, and you're an official scorer. Can you can you, what's the difference between being an official scorer and data casting? Okay, well I've been doing the data casting for MLB.com even before it was MLB.com. Uh, operated by Total Sports, uh, 1998. And it is now for um, MLB.com what the uh, game day is. So if people are at home following a game online on the Major League Baseball website. And I'm not doing a lot of that stuff, the information that's going in there, the type of pitch, how fast it was, that's going in there automatically from the cameras and radar within the stadium. But then I would just mark if it was a ball or a strike and something more specific on it, and then the outcome of the play. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not making any decisions on a hit or an error. That's uh, up to the official scorer who will be next to me. And then with official scoring, you're, you are doing that. You're not entering it into the computer for people to see. The person next to me is, but there they are. Um, the, the data caster in that situation is just taking the direction from the official score on whether to mark something as a hit or an error. How did you become an official score? Like, do, do you have to apply for that? Like, how did how well, did that happen? It can be just being right place, right time, and 
for me that meant I, because I was around there doing these other things with the data casting. Uh, I, but I'd been doing it off and on since the 1980s, and it was really more public address announcing that sometimes put you in a position where you're going to be doing the official scoring as well. Uh, so uh, it came up in the 2000s. The Tom Mead had been doing the official scoring for the Twins for many years, and he wasn't going to be doing it anymore. So originally there were about four of us who took his place in 2007, and then it just went down to a couple of us with Greg Wong, who still does it, and then there's been a couple of other people who have been in there as well. So uh, that's been uh, going on. I've been doing it for the Twins game since 2007. So I'll be doing some games data casting and some games official scoring. What's What's been your favorite um, Metrodome moment and what's been your favorite target field moment as an official scorer <laughs> or data caster? Okay. Um, well, I was a data caster when Cal Ripken got his 3,000th hit at the Metrodome. That was in 2000. And I also, well, I did the, was a playoff game against the Yankees, which was the final game that was played uh, at the Metrodome, the final Twins game played there. And that was uh, uh, 19 or 2009. Uh, favorite for official scoring at Target Field, probably the All-Star game, because uh, that was just a great experience. That was a good game. Uh, and that was uh, just a real, you know, I spent, kind of spent the whole weekend going to some of the different events, and then the culmination of that was the All-Star game. The other sure. interesting one was a couple of years ago, Andrew Romine of Detroit played all nine positions in a game, and just following that around was, was interesting as well. And now, at least nothing you... controversial that came up with any of that. You know, they were just, just pretty straightforward games. Right. Now, in 2013, uh, you you mentioned being an official scorer. In 2013, you were actually named to their, um, uh, the MLB Official Scoring Advisory Committee. You guys have annual meetings at the league headquarters in New York. What are some of the things you guys talk about at those meetings? I mean, obviously, you can't give me full details, I'm sure, but just kind of give us a general idea of what, what the senior advisory committee or the official scoring committee talks about. Okay. The first time that we ever had one of these meetings was 2012. And getting the scores together for the first time was a fantastic experience. And there were different topics that we had to discuss. For example, when would you call a stolen base instead of defensive indifference, things like that. So when, um, but we also look at plays and that's probably one of the biggest things that we, we find valuable is that we can all look at a number of plays together and discuss them. Is that a hit or an error? And we start to zero in a lot better in standardizing our calls, which is what the real objective is. And at that time in 2012, um, they had named there were three people who had been named to the advisory committee and then one of them in the next year is no longer doing official scoring so I was asked to be on it and we'll come out a day early and meet 
and we've already talked about an agenda or format for the school, but we'll go through it more and take on different projects. I um, wrote kind of a case book to go with a rule book on interpretations because sometimes you read the scoring rules and questions can come up. Uh, even though it's, it's there in the rules, you can always find situations to say, well, what if this happens? How do you rule on it? So I was the one who wrote that. We're doing other things. A couple of us are going to be training, or just, yeah, training, I guess you'd say, uh, Eastern League scores. So some of the minor league scores on Tuesday, we've got a, a Zoom call set up to um, go over some different things with them. And uh, just all, but getting together and looking at things, and there's more and more technology that's coming out now that's helping us. The biggest thing is just to be able to see how other scorers are calling different types of plays so that we can try to call them the same way. And we're getting more and more stuff sent to us on a regular basis of uh, plays that are, are appealed by teams. Teams have the right to appeal a scoring decision to Major League Baseball. And if they send that in and appeal it, then it, it also will go out to all the scores. They'll send it out after the whole thing's been processed, after Major League Baseball decides if it's going to change the scorer's decision, which it usually doesn't, or if it does change it, but we get to see many, many more plays and see that, hey, the official score called this a hit. And sure. the, uh, it was upheld by Major League Baseball or it was changed. And, and there's more technology coming at us. When you go to the ballpark now, you can see that stat cast information going up on the board, how, far, how hard the ball was hit and things like that. And scores are, have a different mind on whether they – like that or want to use that um, to me it's just like one more check to you know if I, I know a ball's hit hard but maybe I can then look at the scoreboard and see that it was hit at 103 miles an hour and I can definitely say it's not just it was hit hard it was hit at 103 and maybe if a team wants to appeal a scoring decision and I can even use that in my response to say well, that ball was hit at 110 miles an hour. I can remember one where a pitcher was unhappy because an error wasn't charged to a fielder. Uh, and when I was able to say, well, that thing was hit at 110, that was that was a really hard hit. And, and sure. put a number to it as well. But they're, they're doing more and more with that. And that, well, I'm interested to see just what kind of an impact it will have on official scoring or helping us out. It's not going to automate it which sometimes people get a little bit nervous about, like, gee, they're just going to take the job away from us. And I don't think there's any great danger of that. One of the cooler things you got to do was in March 2017, uh, you got to go to Guadalajara, and you were the official scorer for the World Baseball Classic. Talk about that. Yeah, that was uh, quite an experience. They play the World Baseball Classic every four years. And then in 2017, the opening pools were in Seoul, Korea, Tokyo, and down in Guadalajara. So I went down there. My wife, who speaks Spanish, came with because she served as a translator in the press box if I would 
announce something as a hit or an error, and then she would repeat it in Spanish. And there were seven games. Um, we had the Dominican, or not the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico and Venezuela, Italy, and Mexico. So between, especially between Puerto Rico and Venezuela, it's almost like an all-star roster of the top players, Miguel Cabrera and Carlos Correa, Francisco Lindor, Salvador Perez, Felix Hernandez. And that went to a tiebreaker for which team was going to advance. And um, that was a good game. In fact, Venezuela was trailing by a run in the ninth inning and Miguel Cabrera had a two-run homer. They were long games. Um, and it was uh, just a great experience. I enjoyed a lot of good games there, and I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, I think that, wasn't that the year that the United States won the whole tournament? It was. They finally, in the end, beat Puerto Rico. So yeah. Puerto Rico had, had won, it was, uh, it was undefeated in the pool when we saw them, and then Venezuela had to play a tiebreaker game to get that second spot, and uh, Puerto Rico made it to Los Angeles, and the final game was against the United States, and the U.S. won that one. Uh, it was kind of a kind of a blowout. It was the only, the second game in the classic that Jose Barrios pitched in, and in fact, the Twins okay. were not too happy with his lack of usage. They, I think, he started the season in the minors just because he was gone for ten days and pitched only twice. But we saw him pitch against yeah. Italy. And really saw that that curveball that he pounded in there. He gave up he gave up three runs in five innings with only three base runners. There was a walk and a home run, and later Drew Butera of Italy hit a home run. The only three base runners he allowed, and then he didn't pitch again until the championship game, and it was just in a mop up mop up role. But the U.S. did beat Puerto Rico to win the classic that year. Now you you had you've obviously had a lot of experience um, as an author and a writer and a, and a official scorer, but people might be interested to know that you also did PA announcing for high school and college basketball for over thirty years. Yeah, I started. I was in broadcasting, and so some opportunities just sort of related to that would come up and I started doing basketball at North Hennepin Community College in the early 80s and then they dropped they dropped their basketball teams and I went to Minneapolis Community College and, and then eventually was at St. Louis Park High School so I I always enjoyed that as a chance to get to the game I'm mostly basketball but you know it could be anything I did football at St. Louis Park for a while and uh, just uh, kind of one, once in a while, a soccer or, or volleyball, and I do. Uh, I've also, for about 25 years, been doing some of the public address announcing for the Minnesota Gophers baseball team, and then also the state high school tournament just once a year out at Siebert Field, and have a couple of days. So I don't do it as regularly or as much as I used to. I think 2011 was the last year that I was doing it. Um, regularly for a team, but still occasionally for the golfers and, and then once a year for the high school. I, I enjoy it. It's just an announcing background. I, you know, I did play-by-play announcing when I worked in radio and 
the public address announcing a little easier. Um, it's, it's fun. It gets you at the games. It gets you involved. I always enjoy that. It's going to be a big summer for the Twins. It's, uh, Jan- uh, it's June 1st as we're recording this, and they are retiring Joe Maurer's number this summer. They have their annual Hall of Fame induction um, ceremony this year with Joe Nathan and Andy McPhail coming in to the Team Hall of Fame. And most importantly, they have me throwing out the first pitch of the game this summer. So it's going to be an important summer for the Twins. Talk to me yeah, about you're going to be what... uh, auditioning for Garden Hire. Is that it? In yeah. He needs another yeah, I'm arm. Gonna try, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do a little bit better than that girl in Chicago did the other day. Yeah, well, um, you know the thing is, I've seen I've seen worse, but it was before the social media days, which is maybe a good thing. But yeah, she she kind of pulled the pitch right into that photographer. But I have seen worse. Talk to me, Stu, real quick. We're running out of time, and I don't want to hold you up. Talk to me a little bit about what um, what that Joe Maurer number retirement means, and what kind of he means to the Twins. And if you have a Joe Maurer story, you can share. Okay, yeah, I don't. Um, a, I I loved Maurer as, as many did, although in the final years he was getting criticized, and you know part of it is how it goes with baseball contracts or how it went is somebody gets underpaid for the years that he's really productive and then gets the big contract and and just uh, things changed uh, especially when he was no longer able to catch. I remember that game, it was the Mets, it was a makeup game because they had gotten rained out against the Mets early in the 2013 season. And when they came back and, and played that, it was, uh, he took that foul tip so hard into the mask. And he never caught again except for that token appearance in his final game. But the years that he had, and he was so good, and I hope that. You know, I've, I've followed more Hall of Fame voting sometimes, not just who do I think should be in there. I definitely think Maurer should be in there. Um, but to see players, if they've had a, a career that was the, the upside was on the first part of it, and then at uh, the, the end of the career maybe makes people forget how good they were in there. But I think Maurer as a catcher stood out so well because he was, he was an outstanding catcher, but the hitting that he was able to do. And I think that if somebody looks at the overall career for him, uh, I think he will make the Hall of Fame. I think he's, and he's deserving of it. Uh, he's just a steady player, professional hitter his entire career. And, you know, he wasn't the kind of guy who was <laughs> going to be making headlines other ways, which is, is a good thing. Uh, so some, some other players might stand out in different ways and, Maurer just did, quietly did his job and, and did it well and, and it's a Hall of Fame career. and So they'll retire his number, and uh, he'll, of course, be in the Twins Hall of Fame, but in another five years we'll be looking to see what the, what the voters in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown are doing. Stu, I cannot thank you enough. Especially, We went over by a few minutes. We were a few minutes late. I cannot thank you enough for being willing to come on and talk to me about your 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 books and your career. If fans want to send you a fan letter or get an autograph or something, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I guess send something to the Twins. 
because it, it will always get through to me. <laughs> I don't get that many fan okay. letters, so I'm sure it will get through to me. It's not like they're going to you know, be too clogged up with that kind of stuff, but that, that would be the way to do it. Sounds good. Sue, thank you so much. I had such sure, a blast. Thank you, it's been my pleasure to talk to you. Okay, same here. I'm looking forward to seeing you with that first pitch this summer. I look forward to not trying not to screw it up. Thank you. Yeah, you will. You'll be fine. All right. Thanks a lot, Devlin. <laughs> All right. Thanks, All right. buddy. Yeah, take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Stu Thornley. As you can tell, he just has – he's had an amazing, amazing career. We didn't even talk about it a whole lot, but he's he's actually been the backup official scorer for the Minnesota Timberwolves on his website – he mentions that it's less controversial because he doesn't make all the judgment calls that players, coaches, you know, people like that tend to um, get upset about. He just records points, fouls, and timeouts. So, guys, I cannot tell you, Stu is one of the most personable and friendly and amazing people that I have had the pleasure of of interacting with since I've been doing this podcast. Go to his website. It, it's packed full of information. He talks about all of his books, the Minneapolis Miller books. He talks about um, the official scoring. He even gives libraries of plugs. And he talks about one of my favorite things, which is graveyard hunting. He talks about a lot of the graveyards he's been to, both baseball Hall of Fame-wise and um, famous figures. So go to that. It's StuThornley.net, S-T-E-W-T-H-O-R-N-L-E-Y.net, StuThornley.net. I've got some other good guests who are willing to come on and that I have lined up, and I am looking forward to doing this podcast on a more regular basis. Thank you to everybody who has stuck around. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, and we'll see you down the road in podcast land.